If you'd please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. And in case I haven't seen you or met you before, if you've only been attending Valley for the last couple of weeks, uh, my name is Matthew Nicosia. I'm the children's ministry director here at Valley Bible Church. And uh, I'm honored to be able to, uh, to share the word of God with you this morning. I love doing it with our kids every single Sunday. Sometimes they're more fun than all of you, I'll tell you that. <clears throat> and I'll uh, actually give them a pass from time to time if they're picking my, their nose during the teaching. But I don't give you that kind of uh, leeway, all right? <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bibles that we've got provided for you today, it's on page 771. We'd love for you to follow along and, and be able to see the Word of God for yourself on the pages of, of the Scriptures. And so it's page 771. Follow along as I read aloud in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. It says this, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Now that, that would mean the, the apostles and, and those that had followed Jesus. About 120 were in the upper room. Suddenly, verse 2, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as, as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How then is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you see now and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you've crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the, gifts of the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, what an amazing, amazing history we read here on the pages of the scriptures in Acts chapter 2. And Father, I, I'm asking that this would not just be another great story, uh, another great sermon that we see by the apostles, but oh, Father, I pray that we would hear this as what it truly is, the Word of God, infallible, inerrant, perfect. Not my words, but your words, Father. So we've sung here today, we've given back to you, we've prayed, and now, Father, we're asking, would you do a work in our hearts that we would receive the Word of God that we would believe, be saved, and that we'd turn from our sins to obedience to Jesus Christ. Please do this work in our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for your patience with me. Acts chapter 2, we don't often read large sections of Scripture like that, but I thought it would be great to do. Now, I don't know if you've seen uh, recently, uh, probably the last two years or so, maybe longer, you can correct me if I'm wrong, 
but we've seen a lot of uh, advertisements for what is this DNA testing, right? This DNA testing where we can actually spit in a tube and put it in the mail and send it to somebody. And what they do then is that they examine the, the saliva and the DNA composition, and they can tell you history about your genetic makeup and your ancestry. I mean, it's really quite marvelous. And and uh, I was just reading a study about this, and in 2017, we saw that the number of DNA tests were done were doubled. So you could tell, like, people are really getting into this, and, and more than 12 million people now have done this DNA testing. And what's cool is that the more often that people do it, the more and more accurate the findings can come. So I'm actually just waiting till all of you do it, and then I'll do it, and I'll find out exactly uh, my makeup here and, and what makes me me, I guess. Um, but, you know, I, I, my, mo- my wife and I did it for our mother-in-law for Christmas, and she was real hesitant about spitting in a tube, but we encouraged her to do it, and she was fine. Uh, I found out that my aunt uh, on my mom's side actually did it recently, and so my mom was real excited to find out, you know, through her sister, you know, what was some of the genetic makeup and ancestry of our family. And, and I was fascinated to find out about it, too, so my mom shared with me. She goes, Matthew, let me share with you the results of my sister to find out our genetic makeup, right? And let me just share with you, this is going to amaze you. Most of you are going to be in awe of this. I found out that I'm a white guy. <laughs> yeah, like Eastern European descent, I'm like, yeah, okay, that's, that's about right. I, I, I'm a white guy. Ancestry from somewhere in Europe. Congratulations, Matthew. You've got yourself all figured out now. But why do people do this? I think there's an emotional connection to our ancestry to find out what makes us who we are, our DNA. It's meaningful, especially for those that, that may have been adopted, and maybe that's you in the room here today, and you felt this, this inner urge or desire to say, I want to find out my, my physical ancestry. And so, you know, I, I saw an interview with this lady, and she just said, you know what, I love my adopted family, but there was something that I just wanted to know. Where did I come from? People feel a connection to their past through this. They want to find out their roots. They want to answer the question, where do I come from? But we don't often ask this, what is our, not just our physical DNA, but what is our spiritual DNA? Our spiritual DNA. Now, according to the scriptures, we all have a spiritual DNA that goes all the way back to the first man and woman, to Adam and Eve themselves. But what I want to ask today is, what is our spiritual DNA as God's called out ones in this day and age in 2018? Now, the, the, the text that we just read this morning is, is uh, from, a, from an event that happened 2,000 years ago almost. It's quite amazing. But I think it applies today greatly, significantly. For the church uh, that consists of believers in Jesus Christ, we, we, uh, we trace our DNA, our ancestry back to these moments, the birth of the church here in Acts chapter 2. Now this birth came about through a supernatural event. We saw that in the first uh, 13 verses. The Spirit comes down from heaven on the day of Pentecost 
and it, and it fills this room as almost it was like a, a rushing wind with a noise. And so you hear it, you feel it. And all throughout the scriptures, wind and breath and spirit are all synonymous. So it's fitting that the spirit comes in like this wind and, and then it separates out visually as these tongues of fire. And it's a very mysterious and a very almost strange kind of, kind of thing that's happening here. But it's, it's supernatural. So the birth of this church, the birth of our community happens through a supernatural event. But then it's also birthed, not just through the supernatural, but through a man preaching a message. A man preaching a message which forms the basic tenets upon which the church has been established for 2,000 years. You see, in this message, the church finds her DNA. The church finds her creed. Her creed. Now, we don't use that word very often, especially in this non-denominational type of church that we're in. We don't read a lot of creeds, but we certainly can go back to creeds and find about what did the church believe for those last 2,000 years. But, but I think ultimately we don't bow to any man-written creed. We bow to the Word of God as our creed, do we not? Now, I looked up creed and I wanted to find out what, what does this mean? What is this this DNA that we have, this creed from Acts chapter 2. And, and the definition of creed, I like this, is a codification of belief. A codification of belief. If you want to find out what makes the church the church, you've got to find out what is her creed, her codification of belief. What sets her apart and what she believes and how she practices here in this world. And so we find here the first sermon ever preached in the church. And I'm a plagiarist. I love to steal sermons out of the Bible. <laughs> preach it for me, right? I love to steal Jesus sermons. And today I'm just going to steal pre Peter's sermon. Can I? May I? All right. The first sermon ever preached by, this, by the church. It's the first spirit-filled sermon under apostolic authority after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. This would be the defining moment that would set the standard for the church's message throughout the events of the book of Acts and beyond. Now, this, this sermon was preached somewhere probably around 33 A.D., and we just take it for granted that they had it, they wrote, a, wrote, uh, wrote it down and started carrying it around. Oh, man, now I got this sermon. No, no, no. You see, the first book of the New Testament probably was not written until probably about 10 to 12 years after this this event takes place. In fact, the book of Acts written by Luke probably wasn't written until sometime in the early to mid-60s. So, so we have this event, and we have it written down, but really what they had for all these decades is the oral tradition of it being passed down, and it would spread around, and they talked about it. And so this early church, this was very important for them as their DNA is being established, as they're setting this creed, this, this codification of their belief. The church did not have the New Testament at this time, but they did have 39 books inspired by God himself, the Old Testament. They also had the risen Christ. They also now had the power of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And they also had the faithful witness and testimony of the apostles. And so we come to our text and and I love what happens here in Acts chapter 2. Look at it again in verse 12. All these people that see these 
these men coming out, these Galileans, and Galileans were kind of these, these simple people, right? Way up north, away from Judea, where all of the, the center of the activity is happening here in Jerusalem. No, 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 they're from Galilee. They're from Galilee, and they, they don't speak languages. They're not educated, but yet here these men come out, and they're speaking in all these languages, and the people ask, what in the world does this mean? And it, this is crazy what's happening right here. These guys, I mean, they come out of this room and now here, possibly are out here just on the streets and they're preaching and teaching and, and we hear them in all these languages that we, we, we know from all the lands that we're from. What does this mean? And, and humorously, obviously, some of them are, are making fun of them. Ah, these guys are babbling on. These are drunks, right? These are guys that have been out partying all night. Now they're just full of all of these just crazy words. But Peter answers in verses 14 to 21. He says, what you're seeing is the fulfillment of what was promised through Joel 500 years before. And he quotes Joel so that they can have an understanding. Here's what's happening. As you see these guys, and he says, no, guys. And he, he plays along with some of the mockers. He says, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's too early. These guys aren't drunk, but I am going to tell you, here is what's happening. He says in verse 17, in the last days, in the last days, he's saying this is something that was promised. We're here now in the last days. And then he goes on to say, in the last days, God said through the prophet Joel, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Well, when would that happen? Verse 20 says, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And verse 21 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what Peter's trying to say here through the prophet Joel is this, and you must get this. Peter says this pouring out of the Spirit was promised in the past. It would happen before the future day of judgment, the great and glorious day of the Lord. And the current age, this age in between, is the one of an outpouring of the Spirit and a day of salvation for all who call on the name of the Lord. So Joel, 500 years, said this day would come, this day of Pentecost, that happened in the past. And he said that this event was going to happen before a far future event, the great and glorious day of the Lord when God would judge every man and woman on the face of the earth. But before that day comes, Joel promised, there's going to be this time when God pours out the Holy Spirit upon everybody, everybody upon Jew and Gentile all over the earth. Now, that doesn't mean every person individually, but that means every kind of person all over the earth. The Spirit is going to be poured out all over the earth. And during that time, the age of the outpouring of the Spirit, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, these guys are probably thinking, well, that's great. This, we've been waiting for this for 500 years. Why now? Why now? Why is this happening now? Why in the world are we seeing this happen today? And who is this Lord you're speaking of? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have we seen him? Do we know him? Who is he? Who is he? Why is this happening today? And who is this, this Lord? And Peter goes on and he uses this as an opportunity to give a sermon that provides the creed of the church in, on the day of its inception, the day of its birth. 
Peter gives us the creed of the church living in the day of the Spirit. Now here's the creed. Peter's sermon establishes the message of good news for all humanity through the church until Jesus returns. Again, Peter's sermon or this creed establishes the message of good news for all of humanity through the church until Jesus returns. Now, now breaking up this sermon, I, I always like to have just make it simple, Matt. Like I'm always trying to do that for myself. Keep it simple because I'm not always a guy that can remember everything. And you know this because I've probably had to reintroduce myself to you two or three times before. I forget names very easily. So I like to be able to have something that I can hang on to and I can remember. And so uh, with the help of uh, some of my teachers, uh, Steve Walker and Gary Brashears, they, they helped break this down for me as I, as I watched and heard from them. And three statements, three statements that start with R-E. And so that's helpful for me to remember. What we see in this sermon is what has been revealed, what is our response, and what are the results. Again, in this sermon, we see what has been revealed, meaning what God did, what our response to that revelation should be, which is what we do, and then thirdly, what are the results, what we get, what's been revealed, what God did, how we respond, what we do, and what are the results, what do we get. Let's take a look at it together. First, the response. Uh, excuse me, the revealed. What did God do? What has been revealed? What has been revealed? Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter begins by saying, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. The first thing we see here is that God proved, God proved that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. And today you may be thinking to yourself, Messiah, what does that mean? I don't care. I've never used that word in my life. What Messiah means, according to the scriptures, is that God was promising an anointed person, someone that was blessed with the Holy Spirit that would come and deliver his people Israel from sin and from death and would be their king and be their Lord. That was the Messiah, the anointed one, all through the Old Testament. And now Jesus comes on the scene, and he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And God proved that this Jesus is the Messiah. And he did that through miracles and wonders and signs, things that he did that authenticated his message, things that he did that authenticated the Father's blessing and anointing upon him. Verse 36 of Acts chapter 2 also says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God who has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Friends, the first thing in this creed of what God has revealed is the identity of who Jesus is. He is Lord and He is Messiah. He is Lord and He's Messiah. Peter ended the, the, the quotation from Joel. He said, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. And Peter says unequivocally, this Jesus has been proven to be Messiah and Lord. There is no doubt about it. And Paul, as he wrote later in the New Testament, he says, my heart aches because my fellow Israelites, they're blind to this and they don't see it, that Jesus is 
the one we've been waiting for. But to this day, there are some, there is a remnant of those who see and believe and are being saved. And there are those of us who are primarily consisting of the Gentiles that are seeing this Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and he is the Lord. Well, we're looking at what has been revealed in this sermon. We see what God did. First, God proved that Jesus is the Messiah. Next, we see that Jesus was crucified according to God's plan. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter goes on to say, This man, who is Jesus of Nazareth, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Nailing him to a cross, crucifixion, a brutal death, And there's all kinds of theories about this death. Was Jesus a martyr? Was he trying to just set an example? Was he providing atonement for sins or or, or, or solution for sins? All these different ideas. But Peter is very clear in Acts chapter 2, 23, that he was nailed to the cross by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. You see, it was no mistake that Jesus came and lived. He's Lord and he's Messiah. And all of a sudden, one day when Judas betrayed him, he didn't say, oh my goodness, this is taking me my surprise. How am I ever going to get out of this? And then he was crucified against his will. No, this was the will of his Father. And he submitted his will to the will of his Father. Isaiah 53.10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord, 500 years before the event, yet it was the, will, uh, it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. You see, the second thing about what's been revealed is that Jesus Christ died for sins, and it was God's plan all along to rescue sinners. Jesus is Lord, he's Messiah, and he was crucified according to God's plan. Next, what God did, what's been revealed to us, is that God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. Acts chapter 2, 24 to 32. Again, I'll read some of these verses here. God raised him, this Jesus of Nazareth, from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now what's interesting here, we've had one verse about the cross, and the cross is so important, so crucial. That is the solution to man's sin problem that Jesus dealt with and solved for us there. But look at how many verses, how much emphasis Peter puts on the resurrection. All right, he says, uh, it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. And then he quotes David again. He says, David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not your holy one see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Friends, what we see here is that David, we know he can't be talking about himself as he's writing this. Why? Because David died and he was buried. No, David was talking about somebody else, somebody that was coming from his line, and that person is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and has been raised from the dead. And not only has he been raised, but he appeared to the apostles and more than 500 all at the same time, we know according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
But look at the emphasis of the resurrection over the crucifixion. Not that we want one or the other, but it's both and. But I think if we're going to be living according to this creed, we must never forget the emphasis of the resurrection, of Jesus' victory over sin and death. Friends, I would say our message is primarily this. God has revealed that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died, and that Jesus is alive. Say it with me. Jesus is alive. Now, for those of us that we may be witnessing to and testifying to, and they may ask yourself, what's the difference between all of the religions of the world? I would say this, and I would say Peter would say this, is that our Savior, our God, and our Lord is not buried in a tomb. He is alive, and He appeared, and He's powerful. This is our creed. This is our DNA. What God has done, He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, proved Him to be the Messiah, had a plan for Him to die on a cross, and raised Him from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-5 says, Paul writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. The next thing that's been revealed is that God exalted Jesus over all creation, including His enemies. We see this in in chapter 2, verses 33 uh, through 35. It says, exalted again this jesus of nazareth he's been exalted to the right hand of god he's received from the father the promised holy spirit and he's poured out what you now see and hear david again is quoted he says the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet we know from philippians chapter 2 paul writes that god has given Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what we have as our creed, as our DNA, as the roots and the foundation for our ancestry spiritually as the church is this. What God has done is he's proved that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus Christ was crucified according to God's plan. God raised Jesus from the dead. God exalted Jesus over all creation, including his enemies. And what we see here in this chapter, supernaturally, Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit. You see, this was the promise from the very beginning. John the Baptist foresaw this. John the Baptist was traveling all around Judea and the Jordan River area, and people were coming to him, and he was preaching a message that said, Repent, turn from your sins, and be baptized. And he was baptizing people, but this was before Jesus came onto the scene. And, and John said this, well, I'm baptizing you with water, but someone is coming. Someone is coming, and he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, John 1.33 says. And this is the answer to that prophecy. Jesus came to earth, fulfilled all that the Father had for him, was exalted to the right hand of the Father, and when he got there, he sent down the Holy Spirit as the power, as the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ, here within his people, here within the new true temple of God, which is you and me together indwelt by this Holy Spirit and empowered by him, Jesus poured out the Spirit. Well, that's what has been revealed. 
That's the first part of the creed. What's been revealed, what God did. But, but see, it wasn't just enough that everybody heard what God did. Peter went on and shared with them, you must respond to this message. You must respond. And as you're, as you're sharing this creed, this faith, this gospel, this good news message with your friends and the people and family in your life, your oikos or your household, the people that are in your life, you share with them what God has done. And then our message, our job is to then say, you must respond. You must respond. That's what we do. Well, what's the first response? We see it in chapter 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Have you ever felt cut to the heart? Maybe it was, maybe it was after something that you did that you knew was wrong. And you saw the damage that it created in your life and in the lives of others around you. Maybe it was the result of, of the rebuke of a friend that showed you the error of your ways. Maybe it's through the preaching of the word of God and maybe you're experiencing that today. But one of the responses that every person that's truly a part of this church that accepts this creed is that it cuts to our heart. The first response is that we feel conviction. This conviction is an awareness that I have a problem, and that problem is sin. And that sin can manifest itself in deep guilt. Or maybe this, this awareness manifests itself in shame. I feel ashamed of what I've done to, to those around me and to the God who created me. Maybe this sin, though, for you today, manifests itself in deep-seated fear. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of Satan. I'm afraid of all that can harm me. And I know that I'm, I'm wrong before God. Who can set me free? The first response to this, this creed, this message, is that we feel conviction. But it goes on to say in verse, uh, verse 37 that they were cut to the heart, and then they said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Now, they could have walked away cut to the heart, but that would not have been complete. They actually had to verbalize the fact that they had a need. They had to admit their sin. They actually had to confess. And confession is this. You, you speak the truth from your heart about what you've done. You say it out loud. Now, a lot of times, you know, we confess in our hearts, but I think there's something extremely biblical by saying it out loud. Maybe it's in your prayer closet before the Lord. Maybe it's with somebody else. You say it out loud. You say, Lord, I've sinned. And sometimes we've got to get real specific. Lord, I, I hated my spouse today in my mind. I hated her in the way I talked to her. Or I lusted. Or, 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 or I murdered. Or whatever that may be in your heart, I coveted. Or I, I, I neglected to be kind to my fellow man. We admit our sin. So what we do in response to this message is we feel conviction, we admit our sin. And then chapter 2, verse 38 says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Repent. Peter commanded them to repent. Now, this is not a very popular message today. A lot of people would like to think, God loves me just the way I am. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. 
And then his call to you, his call to me, his call to us through the witness of the apostles and through the church and ultimately through the scriptures is that you must repent. What is this repentance? It's a change of your attitude. And in fact, it's a turning of your allegiance. It's a turning of our allegiance. Now, we say that for those of us that grew up in schools that did this. We'd put our hand over our heart and we'd look at the flag and we'd say, I pledge allegiance to the flag. What is, what is required here for those that are, that are receiving this creed and that have this DNA of, of Jesus Christ and the church in us is that we are people who repent. We change our allegiance from worshiping the gods of this world or even ourselves, but now we turn to put our trust in the one true God who is Jesus Christ. Now, this manifests itself in behavior, but this repentance is first a turning of your allegiance. Acts 26, 20, Paul is speaking and he says, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and then demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. You see, we're not talking about a salvation that comes. You've got to clean up your whole act, friend, before you could ever come to be a part of this community. No, it's simply a change in your heart, a turning of your heart that says, I now give my allegiance to Jesus Christ and to him alone. And the way it expresses itself is in obedience, in a new behavior, in a new life. But that repentance first is a change of the heart. Well, what's the next thing that we do? What's the next part of this response? Chapter 2, verse 41 says, Those who accepted his message were baptized. They had to accept the message. Simply put, they had to believe. They had to accept. They had to trust. And they had to receive the truth in their minds and trust in their hearts in this Jesus Christ. This Lord that who, upon whom they could call would save them. They had to believe. And friends, that's who we are. Those of us who belong to the church, those who belong not to just Valley Bible Church, but the church with a big C, the church universal, are those who have heard and repented and have felt conviction and we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We believe. We accept the message. That doesn't mean that our, sometimes we doubt, but what we do is we, I heard somebody say recently, we doubt our doubts. We ask the questions, and we find out answers, and ultimately, deep down, we say, even though I don't have every answer, I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is risen. What's interesting here, in this message, and it makes me feel a little uncomfortable, is that Peter goes on, on to say in verse 38 again, he says, Peter replied, repent and, I heard somebody say it, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Be baptized. Now, often in our gospel presentations, when we're presenting this creed or this message or this good news to people is that, we ask for them to respond certainly by faith, hopefully by repentance, but then often the outward expression of true faith could be a raising of the hand or 
or a coming forward at an altar call or, or maybe saying a prayer. There is nothing wrong with raising your hand to say, I want to respond to the gospel or coming forward at an altar call or praying to God as an expression of faith. But look at what Peter says is the absolute outward expression of something that's gone on in the heart. He says, repent and be baptized. There may be some of you here today that look back on their Christian experience and they look back on their response to this message and they say, I know that I prayed a prayer. I remember when I raised my hand. I remember when I came forward. That's wonderful, friend. But according to the apostles, according to the scriptures, according to this divine word from the Holy Spirit, the outward expression of our faith is not merely a raised hand, is not merely an altar call, is not merely a prayer said. It is an outward expression and a confession of faith before our peers and being dunked under the water. For those of you today, I would encourage you. In fact, I would exhort you. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and you have yet to be baptized, I highly encourage you. Put your foot forward in obedience to Jesus Christ. Not to earn your salvation, but however to say, I belong to this church. I belong to this creed. I want to tell everybody that I know that I have repented and I have put my faith in Jesus Christ and I'm willing to get dunked under the water and be baptized. But sometimes we get our, our, our message crossed a little bit and we wonder to ourselves, we were working with that with our kids here when we had summer night camp a few weeks ago and we had dozens of kids who, who wanted to respond to the gospel and you know, do we have them raise their hand? Do we have them come forward to altar call? Do we have them pray a prayer? Have them believe in Jesus. Tell them they must repent of their sins. And now we're following up with them. And by the grace of the Lord Jesus, I hope they all come back and say, I want to get baptized. That's the way we know. That's the way they can confirm. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's not put too much emphasis on baptism. But I think this text here should show us that maybe sometimes we put too little emphasis on baptism. It's what we do. We, 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 we see what God has revealed. We respond. We feel conviction. We admit our sin. We repent. We believe and we're baptized. And then what are the results? Last part here. What are the results? What do we get as a part of this creed, this message, this, this gospel message? Well, first of all, chapter 2, verse 38 says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. For the forgiveness of your sins. This is what separated us from God. It's sin. But now, when you've repented and believed, and, and, and then you express it outwardly through baptism, your sin is removed so that we're right with God. This is, this is justification, friends. It's God's declaration of a sinner that he or she is right before God by his grace alone, through our faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Before we do anything ever good, before any, any fruit of repentance even comes out, as long as we've repented and believed and then we get baptized, we're justified, friends. We're justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone, before we do anything ever good, we're declared to be good. God's declaration of a sinner. 
we're forgiven. That's the first result. Next, chapter 2, verse 38 says, we are receive, uh, the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is the fact that we have new life in the Spirit. John chapter 3, Jesus puts it this way, we are born again. It's regeneration. We're given a new heart and the Spirit comes to indwell us. We're converted to become followers of Jesus by the Spirit. What a gift, friends. There would be no hope for any of us to ever respond and know God if He did not put His Spirit within us. As we repent, as we believe, we receive the gift of the Spirit. Chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, I read it before. I won't read it again because of time. But it says that one of the results is that we also belong to a new community. We belong to a new community. Paul said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. In fact, Peter says it. He says, save yourselves, right there in verse 40, from this corrupt generation. Save yourselves from this generation and become a part of a new community. It says in, in, these, in these verses that every single one of them had to repent, and that was personal. And they had to be baptized, and that was personal. And we come to Jesus personally, but notice that it's also in community. They, look at these words in there, they, themselves, everyone, all, together, common, they met together, they ate together. You see what happens when we become a part of this creed, this DNA of the church, is that when we receive it personally, we get to be a part of it corporately, a part of a new community of people. We used to live in darkness, and now we're put into this community of light. Well, we're forgiven, we receive the Spirit, we belong to a new community, and we live with a new mission. Verses 45 to 47 says that these people, in response to this message, after they'd repented and believed and were baptized, they sold property and possessions they gave to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple court. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Friends, a proper result of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ and we've responded to it is that we now live in this community that lives on mission. Our mission is to go and spread this creed, this good news message to all who will hear it so that they would hear what God has revealed so that they would respond so that they could receive it and come to know God through Jesus Christ. Finally, the result was that they enjoyed a new hope. They were glad they praised God. They were enjoying what they were doing. Even if they were about to suffer and that was on the way, they had great hope. And that, friends, to me, I think is one of the greatest blessings of being in this community. One of the greatest results of understanding what God has revealed through Jesus Christ and responding to that message through repentance and belief and baptism is that I get to be a part of this community and we have hope. 
pastor was praying earlier. We joined hands and, and we all corporately together called out to God. And if we didn't believe that this God was a God of hope, it would be a waste of time because we don't believe that God could ever do anything for us. But that's not the message of the scriptures. The message of the scriptures is that as we know God, we're filled with a glorious and joyous hope. Now, some of you today may be here and you may be thinking to yourself, so this is all right and good, but I don't experience, nor have I ever experienced, this kind of hope in my heart. Maybe you're somebody that's here today that is just examining Christianity. You're just trying to check things out. Maybe you're here today just to see, what's this church like? Why, why do they have this building and this campus and this facility? What's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that we're a community of people living according to a hope of what Jesus has done. And today, friends, you can respond to this creed. You can respond to this message. If you would just repent, change your allegiance, and turn to God and believe, and you will be saved. You will be saved. And you could be full of hope. I apologize, I've gone a little bit long, but I would like for us to have an opportunity to respond even now. We're going to sing a song. It's called You Are Holy. And as we, as we think about God's holiness, it's His absolute glorious perfection. Perfection, His sinlessness. As you sing that, think about our creed, this God that we've trusted in. And for those of you today that would like to respond and would like to talk with somebody, we'll have some of our elders and pastors and deacons and hopefully their spouses they could come forward to so we could have a mixture of men and women. We would love to help you understand how you could respond and be a part of this community that's full of hope. This is our ancestry. This is our DNA. This is our creed, the hope that we have in our Savior.